From New York, this is Democracy Now! How dare you criticize our country? We will murder you. In the absence of information, conversations will turn violent. Ravish Kumar, I warn you, you better change before it's too late. A spineless journalist greets a hopeless society. Hello, I'm Ravish Kumar. They want to break the country. This will not be tolerated. News channels are poisoning your mind. Those who ask questions are called traitors. Press freedom is under attack in India. A stunning new documentary captures what happened when one of India's most prominent primetime TV journalists, Ravish Kumar, reported critically on Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Ravish will join us today, along with the Indian filmmaker Vinay Shukla, who directed the new documentary While We Watched, then to Rainbowland. We'll speak to a first-grade teacher in Wisconsin who was fired for protesting a decision by her school district to ban her students from singing Rainbow Land, a hit song by Miley Cyrus and Dolly Parton. I think that people assume that these things are happening in Florida and Georgia and Texas because we hear about those stories in the news, but I'm here in Wisconsin, and it's happening here, too. All that and more... Coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. An unrelenting heat wave across the southern United States is continuing today, with dozens of temperature records set to fall. In Phoenix, Arizona, where nighttime temperatures have not fallen below 90 degrees Fahrenheit since early July, forecasters are predicting a 20th consecutive day with high temperatures of over 110 degrees. This week, more than 44 million people People in 28 U.S. states and several Canadian provinces have been affected by smoke from a record number of wildfires. In northern Mexico, migrants stuck at the U.S. border waiting to apply for asylum are facing increasingly desperate conditions. Temperatures in the border city of Nuevo Laredo soared to nearly 110 degrees Wednesday. We need to be drinking cold beverages frequently to adjust our body temperature. But the rest of the day, we feel low in energy, dehydrated. My daughter's lips are chapped even though I give her hydration solutions and lip balm. She's still quite affected. In northern India, public health officials are warning of a high risk of waterborne diseases as floodwaters from unusually heavy monsoon rains begin receding. The swollen Yamuna River has caused extensive flooding across the holy cities of Vrindavan and Mathura. With this weather and the time of the year that we are in, there is high chances of spread of contagious diseases. So especially the diseases related to gastro, the skin diseases, the viral infections. This is where we have to be on guard now that the water is receding. Meanwhile, the European Space Agency warns a massive heat wave gripping the continent won't end anytime soon. In Ukraine, one person was killed. More than two dozen others were injured as Russia's military launched a third straight night of attacks on the Black Sea port cities of Mykolaiv and Odessa.
The attacks came as Russia's defense ministry warned ships against sailing into Ukraine's Black Sea ports, saying they'll be considered parties to the Ukrainian conflict. The threat followed the Kremlin's withdrawal from the Black Sea grain deal, which allowed safe passage of food and fertilizer from Ukraine. On Wednesday, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, accused Russia of directly targeting grain silos at Black Sea ports. This terrorist attack proves that their target is not only Ukraine and not only the lives of our people. In the ports that were attacked today, there were about a million tons of food stored. It is precisely that amount that should have already been delivered to consumer countries in Africa and Asia. In Kenya, local media report at least six people were killed Wednesday as a three-day protest against tax hikes and soaring cost of living kicked off. The ongoing anti-government demonstrations have caused unrest in the capital Nairobi and other cities, shuttering schools and businesses. Last week, at least 14 people died in protests, at least 10 of whom were shot and killed by police. The opposition leader, Raila Odinga, called for protests after President William Ruto announced the tax increases last month. This is a protest from Kibera in Nairobi. We came out on our own initiative. Nobody made us protest. We are out here because we are tired. If they want, they should just sell the country and everyone get their share and plan for themselves. In Afghanistan, dozens of women held a demonstration in the capital Kabul Wednesday, protesting against the Taliban's decision to shut down thousands of beauty parlors and salons nationwide. Taliban officers responded by firing water cannons and deploying tasers against the women before shooting their guns into the air to break up the protest. In Iraq, protesters stormed the Swedish embassy in central Baghdad Wednesday, starting a small fire before they were driven away by Iraqi police armed with electric batons. No embassy staff members were injured in the protest, which was condemned by the foreign ministries of both Sweden and Iraq. Protesters were angered over the burning of a Koran outside a mosque in Stockholm last month. In Egypt, President Abdel Fattah Sisi has pardoned the detained Italian-Egyptian human rights researcher Patrick Zaki and lawyer Mohamed al-Bakr. Zaki's pardon came just one day after he was sentenced to three years in prison for writing about the discrimination he suffered as a member of Egypt's Coptic Christian community. Mohamed al-Bakr is the lawyer for technologist, blogger and writer Al-Abdel Fattah, a leading activist in the 2011 revolution and Egypt's most prominent political prisoner. Al-Bakr was arrested in 2019 and sentenced to four years in prison in 2021 for his work defending al-Fattah. You can see our interviews with Allah Abdel Fattah and our coverage of his case at democracynow.org. Morocco's king has invited Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for an official state visit. The invitation by King Mohammed VI was announced just two days after Israel recognized Morocco's claim of sovereignty over Western Sahara, the territory it's occupied since 1975 in defiance of the United Nations and international law. In Peru, tens of thousands of protesters took the streets of Lima Wednesday to demand interim President Dina Boluarte step down. Boluarte came to power following the ouster of leftist President Pedro Castillo in December of last year. Dozens of protesters were killed in the ensuing crackdown by police and security forces. This government caused a genocide. It killed 80 innocent lives, and the people will never forgive this. This is the reason we're here today. This is an immoral and incapable government. This government has only suppressed us.
demonstrators are calling out persistent inequality and poverty in Peru. A new report by a congressional watchdog highlights the growing price of maintaining the Pentagon's nuclear command, control and communication systems. The Congressional Budget Office said the cost of operating, upgrading and maintaining U.S. nuclear command is expected to reach $117 billion over the coming decade, a $23 billion increase compared to an estimate made just two years ago. The report was released as Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders proposed amendments that would cut the U.S. military budget by 10 percent compared to the record. $886 billion budget National Defense Authorization Act approved by the House of Representatives last week. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Democrats would not block a vote on the Pentagon's policy of paying for employees' abortion-related travel if it can end Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville's months-long holdup of military appointments. Tuberville recently came under fire for defending white nationalists in the military. A federal judge has rejected former President Trump's request for a new trial after a New York jury ordered Trump to pay $5 million to the writer E. Jean Carroll for sexually abusing her at a department store in the 1990s and defaming her. U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan on Wednesday rejected claims by Trump's lawyers that the verdict was a seriously erroneous result and a miscarriage of justice. Kaplan wrote, quote, the finding that Ms. Carroll failed to prove that she was raped within the meaning of the New York Penal law does not mean that she failed to prove that Mr. Trump raped her, as many people commonly understand the word rape. Indeed, as the evidence at trial recounted below makes clear, the jury found that Mr. Trump, in fact, did exactly that, the judge said. In Mississippi, a 16-year-old immigrant died Friday after he was injured while working at a poultry plant in the city of Hattiesburg. Duvan Tomas Perez was a middle school student who came to the U.S. six years ago from Guatemala. Witnesses say the teen's fatal injury came as he was cleaning heavy machinery that was left on, an apparent major safety violation. Several U.S. states have recently rolled back child labor laws, though Mississippi law does not allow minors to be employed in slaughterhouses and meatpacking. Plants. To see our recent interview with the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter Hannah Dreyer about child labor in the U.S., go to democracynow.org. New York City has agreed to pay more than $13 million to settle a lawsuit brought by more than 1,000 protesters who faced aggressive police behavior that violated their civil and constitutional rights during the 2020 uprising that followed the murder of George Floyd. The settlement announced today is the largest amount paid to protesters in a class-action suit in U.S. history. Researchers with the National Lawyers Guild combed through thousands of social media posts and police body camera and helicopter videos. They documented numerous cases of improper use of force, by New York police officers who were filmed beating protesters with batons, unleashing pepper spray, and aggressively using a tactic called kettling to trap and arrest protesters en masse. Today's settlement separate from another case. The city settled in March with hundreds of people who were kettled, beaten, detained, and arrested by New York police officers at a June 2020 protest in the Bronx. In labor news, members of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, are voting this week to authorize a strike that could see Broadway and touring shows halted by the end of the week. The strike would affect some 1,500 union members working as stagehands, hair and makeup artists, and wardrobe personnel. Contract negotiations have stalled as workers fight for better health care, wages, and housing for touring crews. This comes as Hollywood remains effectively at a standstill, as twin writer and actor strike show no 
sign of ending. The WGA and SAG-AFTRA filed a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board this week against Comcast NBC Universal, which the unions say blocked a sidewalk picketing area, forcing strikers to walk on busy roads. Meanwhile, L.A. City Controller Kenneth Mejia said the city did not issue any trimming permits for the shade providing trees outside Universal Studios, which were trimmed down where union members are picketing amidst a persistent heat wave. And in Northern California, the president of Stanford University is resigning after a review of scientific research papers he authored or co-authored found they contained manipulated data. Mark Tessier-Levine, a renowned neuroscientist, will also retract or issue corrections on five papers. He was previously an executive at the biotech company Genentech, where he published a 2009 study on Alzheimer's, which the review found had multiple problems. Tessier-Levine's downfall was prompted by investigative reports authored by 18-year-old freshman reporter Theo Baker— a writer for the Stanford Daily Newspaper, who dug into rumors in the science world about the falsified data. He spoke to a local ABC News affiliate about the case Wednesday. All told, there are about a dozen papers on which Tessie Levine is a co-author, a named co-author, that seem to have manipulated imagery. For five of those, he's the principal author, uh, and he's now agreed, as a result of this report that also led to him stepping down, to uh, retract, or, retract or issue lengthy corrections to all of these very widely cited papers. Uh, and, and that's something that definitely wouldn't have happened uh, had uh, our reporting not brought this into the fore and Stanford decided to uh, investigate itself. Theo Baker became the youngest and the first-ever college student to win a George Polk Award for his reporting on this case. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, while we watched a stunning new documentary capturing what happened when one of India's most prominent primetime TV journalists, Ravish Kumar, reported critically on Prime Minister Narendra Modi. He joins us today along with the film's director, Vinay Shukla. Stay with us. of the Moon by Anushka Shankar, the daughter of Ravi Shankar. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. 
We begin today's show looking at press freedom in India, often referred to as the world's most populous democracy. Under Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, Modi's head of the Hindu nationalist BJP party, he was once banned for nearly a decade from the United States on charges. He did not intervene in a massacre against Muslims in 2002 in the Indian state of Gujarat, which he headed. But he's now being embraced by President Biden and other world leaders. In June, Biden hosted Modi for a state dinner. Last week, Modi was the guest of honor at France's Bastille Day Parade, as French President Emmanuel Macron rolled out the red carpet for him as well. Meanwhile, back home, the leaders of 26 opposition political parties in India announced a new alliance this week that aims to oust Modi in next year's general election. Coalitions called the Indian National Developmental Inclusive Alliance with the acronym INDIA. Modi called the new alliance a, quote, hardcore corruption convention. All this comes as one of India's last bastions of free media, NDTV, has been taken over by the Indian billionaire Gautam Adani, who is from Modi's home state of Gujarat, believed to have close ties to the prime minister. He is the richest man in India, the third richest in the world. Now, a stunning new documentary captures what happened when one of India's most prominent TV journalists, NDTV's executive editor and longtime anchor, Ravish Kumar, reported critically on Modi's Hindu nationalist policies. The film resonates far beyond India. It's called While We Watched. This is the trailer. What's happening on TV today is not journalism. Every channel echoes the same too. This is a big story and nobody's running it. How dare you criticize our country? We will murder you. In the absence of information, conversations will turn violent. Ravish Kumar, I warn you, you better change before it's too late. A spineless journalist breeds a hopeless society. Hello, I'm Ravish Kumar. They want to break the country. This will not be tolerated. News channels are poisoning your mind. Those who ask questions are called traitors. Somebody is following us. Since when? Will they shut us down? You Pakistan lover, you traitor. Would you like to sing with me? Better than the entire world. Ravish Kumar, you swine. I'm warning you. Is this the India you dreamt of? Maybe I should quit. Should we only do reports that governments let us? I have the same doubt. Name one country where there is so much hate on TV. He is anti-national. You think I'm a traitor? We're not traitors. If we choose to remain silent, it will cost us the truth. That's the trailer for the new documentary, While We Watch. Some have called the film an elegy for press freedom in India. It comes to U.S. theaters this week. For more, we're joined in New York City by its director, Vinay Shukla, and by its subject, Ravish Kumar, the acclaimed Indian journalist and author who is a senior executive editor of NDTV India, where he hosted a number of programs, including the channel's flagship weekday show. In 2019, he received the Ramon Magsaysay Award, often referred to as the Asian Nobel Prize. 
We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, I want to begin with Vinay Shukla. And if you could talk about your decision to make this film about Ravish, who you followed for some two years, and in so doing, being a kind of fly on the wall in the newsroom and at his home, we see what happens to press freedom. It's a kind of microcosm uh, in India. Talk about this journey you took with Ravish. Uh, I think in the beginning, when I used to, uh, you know, when I used to watch the news, there was so much noise. Uh, I would speak to my friends very often, and they would say that they have stopped watching the news completely because it's not good for their mental health, so on and so forth. And I used to find that very distracting, uh, 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 very concerning, because news is a system, is a major system of public information, at least in India. And, you know, I believe we come to the news because we want to learn something that will make our lives better. So when so many people are switching off from the news, that was something very concerning for me. Uh, in India, just to give you context, you know, fact-based reportage has really taken a backseat, uh, a backseat, and there is, uh, you know, opinion and, and and debate shows are the norm. Uh, so when I came across, I remember watching one of Ravish's broadcasts, and very often you have news anchors who will tell their audiences that we are here to serve you and the audience is number one. Uh, Ravish was actually scolding his audiences that uh, you should be doing better, please stop watching TV, and that's the only way uh, we can all get better. Uh, I, find, I, I found that to be ironical, that here was somebody in the news business who was asking people to stop watching the news. And he was also being very, very vulnerable on television. Uh, you know, he was wondering aloud if there was an audience out there for him. Uh, so I really found that to be a good starting point, because I think over a period of time, we have all become very desensitized to the crisis that people who are working within the news industry are facing. Uh, and with Ravish, I thought I had a good protagonist to try and investigate that. As you said that uh, uh, now uh, Indian uh, television news channels are dominated principally uh, by debates and also extremely aggressive anchors, I'd like to go to a clip of one of India's uh, most popular news show hosts, Arnab Goswami. I believe that being a nationalist is a prerequisite to being a journalist. And this is a clip from a 2016 segment featuring an interview with Omar Khaled, uh, a student activist and former leader of the Democratic Students Union at JNU, a university that's considered India's Harvard. He was one of the most prominent voices in the protests against the execution in 2013 of Afzal Guru, who was convicted of the 2001 Indian parliament attack. The protests also criticized the execution of Kashmiri separatist leader Makbul Bhatt, who was hanged in 1984. Omar Khalid has since been accused under the so-called Unlawful Activities Prevention Act. So this is Arnab interviewing Omar Khalid. Look at your poster, which argues for self-determination for Kashmiris, the same line that Pakistan takes today. Look at your statements, which say that Abzal Guru's wishes will be fulfilled. Look at, look at your slogans. Look at your, look at your pathetic, look at your pathetic slogans that call for India's destruction. You cannot be on my soil holding an Indian passport, carrying out education that is subsidized by the Indian taxpayer, and have the temerity to say that I will provide a 
a platform for people who say that we will work relentlessly till India is destroyed. Look at your statements that label India a spiteful state. Look at your statement that says that the lasting call of Azadi rings loud in the heart of every Kashmiri. You are a secessionist under the argument of death penalty. And for far too long, ladies and gentlemen, in this country, for far too long in this country, under the garb, for far too long in this country, and I will not be interrupted at this point of time by him. So I request, please, just reduce his volume. So that's Arnab Goswami interviewing Omar Khalid. I'd like to ask Ravish Kumar if you could talk about how representative this is of the broader uh, media landscape of uh, Indian television news programs. I mean, good man, thank you for having me here. A lot of viewers uh, who watch my show follows uh, your work and they have sent uh, a huge regard to your work. Having said that, uh, uh, this uh, clip uh, you uh, just showed about uh, Arnab Goswami, in the beginning, he was the one, but now we have many more like him. Uh, entire Indian news channel systems have become, uh, there are many news channels, hundreds of news channels, but they are the same anchors are doing the same kind of job. What you just showed uh, to your viewers that how Arnab Goswami, Goswami is shouting and alienating a young boy uh, 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 and uh, delegitimizing him uh, from his citizenry, from his right to speak and right to uh, uh, to stand for uh, anything he believes the, that is wrong. Uh, this media is, uh, we have to be very uh, clear that this media is, Indian media is not, a, a, is the biggest story, one of the prominent story of any democratic world now. And uh, this is not a routine media decline story. Uh, see, uh, the dis- destruction is on a, is a very huge, on a vast scale. And after dis- uh, destruction, this media has turned into a weapon. The weaponization of Indian media is something to uh, uh, to worry uh, uh, to worry about. Uh, and this media is day and day in day out going uh, uh, branding people say that you are traitor, you are pro-Pakistani, you are anti-national, anti-Hindu, all things in the name of religion and in the service of Prime Minister. So uh, though we do have uh, kind of media, but we do not have have media where you have any kind of alternative voices. So uh, this crisis is not a routine crisis. We have to be very careful that uh, no sober society can afford to have a kind of rogue media which is so weaponized, which is so communal hatred uh, spreading that anchors are uh, they are just not uh, loud and shrill. This is just facade. Uh, they are their voices are laden with such hatred against one community in the name of religion. They are inciting masses. They have become weapon of mass destruction. Uh, Ravish, so explain, you were the senior executive editor at uh, NDTV, then Gautam Adani has taken it over. Explain how NDTV was different uh, from all these other uh, television news channels. It was different in many ways. NDTV uh, did put up a brave fight, Pranay Roy and Radhika Roy, they were also framed with many charges, uh, but they could not save their channel. Yes, uh, they faced a lot of uh, resource problem, but they never intervened in the editorial uh, work or our job. 
so they tried uh, uh, to the last of their core uh, uh, to save this channel and to uh, to have a space where you can uh, where you can raise uh, uh, alternative voices you can raise uh, questions we can raise uh, uh, you can give a platform to many peoples uh, like you just had a, a headline of uh, uh, of northern india the danger of waterborne disease indian media has left this kind of a story is once prime minister returned from france and they are again doing their agenda and they are uh, in the service of their politics so ndtv was different in many ways uh, and yes you rightly said it was the last bastion of indian media now you do not have one channel which is doing differently you have main number of channels who all are doing the same content and that content is communal hatred with full of falsehood I want to go back to the documentary while we watched. In this clip, um, Ravish, you are talking with reporter Sarab Shukla about the challenges that you're all facing working at NDTV at the time. I've been losing sleep over this. There seems to be no way out. This is a new move. They want to make sure we have no reach. We are becoming irrelevant. At least here at NDTV, we've got each other's back. It won't be the same elsewhere. I can keep talking about what's wrong in the world, but people's ideologies have changed so much. How are we going to reach them? There are no easy solutions, sir. This is our life. And I want to go to another clip from All We Watched, where Ravish Kumar bids farewell to a departing colleague. Then we see him in conversation with his wife with in the car. It's my last day today. Is there anyone left in your department? A few of them are still hanging on. I am just worried for your safety. I don't know how to deal with this pressure. The newsroom keeps getting emptier every day, and you need resilience and a tough spirit. But everything is standing against you. It's getting harder for me to see you like this. There's so much despair and despondency, and it strikes terror in the heart. I don't know what to do anymore. That's Ravish Kumar talking to his wife in the car. Ravish, if you can talk about your decision to resign. I mean, every night, what was it, at 9 o'clock, millions of people around India tuned in to hear what you had to say. Also, your reporting on the streets as you brought the voices out of people. Talk about that decision you came to. And what Modi had uh, to do with it, the prime minister? Uh, it was very tough to uh, uh, to reach a decision like this uh, uh, because I've been born and brought up uh, professionally on that floor all, uh, itself. Uh, uh, when Gautam Madani uh, took over NDTV, it was very clear to me that uh, uh, the the journalism of uh, NDTV uh, is over now. And that decision was proved uh, after that when Hindenburg report came out. And uh, and still, uh, NDTV went out to uh, make a nine documentaries praising the achievement
government of Narendra Modi's governments during nine years. Uh, uh, so uh, I knew, uh, knew that uh, you cannot see uh, Gautam Adani as an independent businessman. Yes, he may be, uh, but uh, he is seen in the public that he is an extension uh, opposition's blame, uh, 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 alleged uh, uh, that uh, this man is a part of uh, Prime Minister's politics. Uh, so, uh, yes, he said that there will be a difference between editorial and management, but now we can see that uh, where this program channel is going on. And before Adani, uh, um, ministers and spokesperson from the Bharti Janata Party, you started boycotting us. Uh, they did not appear in my my show and my other colleague show. Now one ministers go on record and is reported by uh, News Laundry. Uh, if I am correctly rephrasing it, uh, she says that uh, is a prom she is a prominent minister. She is saying that uh, we I have not spoken to you for uh, long. Uh, now uh, I believe there is a regime change. Uh, th that's where she is making it officially that we were boycotting you. Now we are not boycotting because uh, uh, there is a regime change. Or what is this regime change? Pranay Roy is gone and Adani is in. So it was very clear to me, though it was very hard and uh, it was very heartbreaking decision for me to uh, leave uh, NDTV and uh, yes, uh, but I had to take this decision. I could not work under that man. You explain, uh, uh, first of all, what happened to uh, Pranoy Roy and Radhika Roy, who are the founders of NDTV. You show a little bit uh, of that in the film. And then uh, explain why the press in India is referred uh, derisively to as Godi media. Explain what that means. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, I'm not uh, very privy to all kind of informations uh, and uh, stories which uh, Pranoy and Radhika uh, gone through. Uh, I believe they should uh, tell their own story. But yes, they uh, fought a lot of cases. And uh, uh, even uh, this man you showed, he uh, covered uh, live and, uh, and uh, spoke many uh, bad things about him when his house was... Uh, being uh, raided. Uh, it was covered by, live covered by. Uh, but uh, uh, yes, they, they faced a lot and uh, I can sense that uh, uh, they have a house uh, in front, uh, just uh, besides NDTV office. Uh, they must be feeling uh, sad when uh, they come out of their house. Uh, but they have to tell their story. But Indian media, we have to be very careful. We cannot be casual about this. Uh, this media is, uh, is, uh, is has become very dangerous. Right now, they, this is shielding uh, our government, our prime ministers every day. They are not giving a space to opposition. This media has become so anti-opposition, so anti-minorities, anti-Muslims. You cannot imagine the scale I am talking about. I can give n number of examples to elaborate, elaborate my point. But uh, I still uh, think that uh, Indian media is gone. Uh, we have many things uh, in India. We still have many robust uh, system uh, which makes us uh, uh, hopeful that uh, ultimately democracy will survive. But this but we do not have uh, media in, 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 a, in a true or partial journalistic sense. I mean...
Uh, Vinay, can you explain, I mean, given the fact, uh, you know, the, the description both in the film as well as uh, what you both have been saying, uh, the media climate in India, is there any prospect at all uh, that your film will be released there? Has And has it been shown at all, even in private screenings? Okay, so the, I think there is, uh, it's a two-part answer. Uh, I have received a lot of love from people. Wherever I go out, whenever there's a post about the film, people are really, really waiting for the film to come out. Uh, and I, you know, the film prem premiered in Toronto last year. We've been winning awards since. Every time I talk about, uh, you know, having won an award or, you know, screened the film internationally, people are always like, when will you bring it back home? So uh, there is a fair amount of demand amongst the audiences. I haven't so far had any offer from a distributor to put the film out. Uh, uh, which is, uh, which of course is challenging. Uh, on my previous film, I made a very, very uh, political film before this. And, you know, I was able to release that in theaters and, you know, it ran for many weeks. So I'm, I am hopeful that I'll be able to do that because ultimately I made this film for audiences back home. Uh, you know, I made this film for my cousin, for my parents, for my, uh, for my friends. This film is made in a language in which uh, I believe that I'll be able to communicate and speak to them. So I'd really like to show them the film. And uh, I'm really, really hopeful. Ahead of Prime Minister Narendra Modi's official state visit to the White House last month, the Committee to Protect Journalists and other organizations ran a full-page ad in The Washington Post highlighting what they call the press freedom crisis in India. The ad said in part, Quote, India is the world's largest democracy, yet it's one of the world's most dangerous countries for the media, unquote. During Modi's visit, he and Biden held a joint news conference. Modi was questioned by Wall Street Journal reporter Sabrina Siddiqui, who's believed to be the first journalist to ask Modi a question at a news conference since 2015. This was the interaction. Mr. Prime Minister, India has long prided itself as the world's largest democracy, but there are many human rights groups who say that your government has discriminated against religious minorities and sought to silence its critics. Um, as you stand here in the East Room of the White House, where so many world leaders have made commitments to protecting democracy, what steps are you and your government willing to take to improve the rights of Muslims and other minorities in your country and to uphold free speech? We have always proved that democracy can deliver. And when I say deliver, this is regardless of caste, creed, religion, or gender. There's absolutely no space for discrimination. Following that news conference, the Wall Street Journal reporter, Sabrina Siddiqui, faced an intense online harassment campaign by supporters of Modi. Ravish Kumar, it's something you are very familiar with. First, were you surprised that she got to ask this question? And of course, underlying all of this is your views of what's happening to India under Modi right now, as he's being hailed by world leaders, what you see happening at home. If you could respond to all of that. Yes, uh, I was uh, surprised and I thought that uh, uh, whoever uh, arranged this uh, press conference done a great maneuvering job uh, because our, uh, sorry to say that our prime minister who comes from a leading democracy in the world, 
uh, hasn't done any press conference in nine years of his government. And uh, he uh, came to power on the pretext that earlier prime minister is not speaking, he's not a vocal man. Uh, the prime minister gave a number of his speeches, but he could not hold one press conference and uh, take questions. And uh, I was happy because uh, for one reason, uh, this is the one prominent questions which uh, which is chasing our prime minister to ask for many years and finally someone had got chance and she asked that questions this is the question he's running away and uh, in many ways uh, yes this question her question was representative of many questions which we are raising uh, that uh, a communal a vicious communal media has uh, uh, become uh, so uh, uh, so weaponized uh, and the communal uh, hatred is so high in, in India and there is a reason behind this uh, anchors have a legitimacy I it trolls have uh, legitimacies political support administrative support and and uh, the question was very right, and I do not think that question was answered very well. And Ravish, could you explain uh, uh, the question of uh, communalism in India? Muslims constitute about 14 percent of the country's population. 200 million Muslims uh, or more live in India. Uh, why are Muslims the uh, target uh, repeatedly of uh, the Indian press? Uh, since 2014, uh, uh, nobody had idea. And uh, if you uh, look at the Muslims' uh, organizations, even they did not say anything uh, which uh, should be countered like this. Uh, they were very quiet. And uh, but uh, suddenly, this media turned into a, a communal machine. Uh, it has become a factory of uh, communal hatred and. Uh, uh, anchors changed from within and they started spreading communal hatred. Even Supreme Courts, I mean, uh, in many occasions have uh, strictly criticized this kind of media and asked question uh, government that can't we stop this kind of media? But nothing has been done. If you surf any news channel, even right now, uh, you will find one or other uh, channel is doing communal agenda. So it has been legitimized by media. Media job was to question this kind of communal agenda, but it has become a direct tool to spread this kind of communal agenda. And the scale is very vast. I'm not talking about Indian newspapers. I'm only talking about here about, about uh, Indian television. Uh, shameful. There is no other issues are being covered, but every day, every anchor has come up with some kind of communal grievances and giving voices to majoritarianism. So this kind of television journalism uh, uh, we have and we are not talking about this. Uh, individuals have suffered because of that. Uh, there are many incidents uh, where uh, uh, people on the people on the street uh, thought that they have a support of television. They have normalized such things. Then even at home, uh, elders have discussing and legitimizing this kind of uh, uh, communal biases uh, to uh, in their younger generation. So uh, no institution is there to stop. When lockdown happened during COVID, uh, 
suddenly these channels started blaming one group of muslims organizations and many were arrested targeted and uh, there were many many places we had an incident like that uh, people uh, went on the street and start checking i identity card of uh, fruit sellers vegeta vegetable sellers that show your identity card if you are muslims you are not allowed to sell here so uh, it was a kind of uh, atmospheres which was created by this television channels and after many months many courts have said that television channels have done great damage to this country and uh, and this kind of fake news fakery has uh, been propagated by the news channel so you have many official accounts of their communal agenda and uh, criticized by the supreme court i am not saying alone uh, so Ravish, explain, uh, uh, you know, you've said that uh, trolls have become the authority in India and authorities have become trolls in India since 2014. In other words, since Modi came to power, uh, explain uh, the power of these trolls and how much uh, false news, uh, disinformation is circulated on WhatsApp and the effects of that. I mean, when trolling started in Indian uh, uh, public life, uh, many uh, uh, people who are uh, uh, active in public sphere uh, used to tell me that um, uh, these things will come and go. But I could sense that these are not social trolls. This, these kind of trolls are not coming from random part of the society, but it has a support. It has institutional support. And now they have become an authority in itself. If they start trolling you, you will find that cases are being filed against you. You will find that police have reached to your st uh, doorstep. I know one female journalist uh, uh, who, who's, uh, uh, who had to leave her town, who, uh, who was a uh, very v bright uh, young female journalist who was promoted uh, a few days uh, back. But, but because of trolls, uh, she was fired and she lost her job and uh, she was brought to police station where these goons were uh, uh, asking her to apologize and she had to apologize in front of the police so so we you this isn't they, they these trolls are not a normal trolls they have the power of the day power of the government they are not, they they may be invisible but their impact is so visible on your career on your life on your mental health health that you cannot imagine and i am not not, yes, I am the one case, but many female journalists are suffering uh, from uh, their sufferings are not being told and they are uh, not. Uh, uh, but uh, yes, uh, um, these tools have uh, been successfully marginalized. Any journalist, any female journalist, uh, their uh, state of mental health are in, are in great uh, distress. So uh, they have the power, they have the political power, and they have the legitimacy to uh, drag you in any, uh, any controversy, and they can do whatever they want to do with you. Vinay, you end the film uh, with um, Ravish winning the Ramon Magsaysay Award uh, in the Philippines, considered the uh, Asian Nobel Prize. The significance of this for you... Ravish, and what you're doing now as you resign from your position as this renowned primetime host on NDTV, as it was taken over by the richest man in India, allied with Modi. 
uh, I'm doing uh, my, I'm running my own uh, YouTube channels and yes, uh, I've got huge supports from my uh, viewers and, uh, but uh, I, I have to say one thing that, uh, uh, that uh, we have been sentenced a kind of professional exile in our country. Uh, many journalists like me are not getting jobs uh, and they, are, they have been isolated. So yes, if uh, if there there was not if we had not uh, YouTube, we uh, would have not survived in this profession. So uh, I am grateful to YouTube that I am earning my bread from that. But I do not know uh, when this channel will be uh, uh, killed uh, with one notice or one uh, notification and uh, the uncertainty uncertainty of this YouTube channel is great, uh, is so vast. But yes, uh, I'm grateful that uh, we all are, many people like me are earning uh, their bread, but we have been sentenced to professional exile. Over to Vinay. And Vinay, as we wrap up, I want to ask you how covering and living with almost <laughs> Ravish Kumar's family, his community at NDTV for two years changed you. You're a well-known filmmaker. But what this has meant for you? I was honestly very, very surprised when I got there and, and I started shooting because there's a public perception that you have. Uh, Ravish is a very fairly uh, well-known anchor and, you know, people are polarized. People have very charged opinions about him. So when I began shooting, I was thinking that, you know, he'd have a team of 10 people and, you know, a lot of people around. Uh, he was operating from a very small room with, with a very, very small team. And uh, uh, I was also very, very impressed as to put it very simply by the amount of uh, 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 rigor and work that goes on within uh, within the the entire newsroom uh, i am very very invested in processes and uh, when i was there at ndtv and on that floor uh, i was suddenly given a very clean insight into how much it takes from people to be able to do the job they do. You know, journalism has been dehumanized so much in the last uh, in the last decade or so, and for sure there have been some bad agents. But the disinformation campaign against journalism has been so strong that we have forgotten to understand the process of processes of journalism. Uh, my film is, you know, my love letter to journalism. It it shows you the cost the emotional and financial costs that journalists have to pay to be able to do what they're doing. Vinesh and I'm keenly interested that we have a larger conversation around the systems of journalism. You know, very often we tend to focus, for example, today we have Ravish with us and, you know, it's the story of NDTV. But for as long as we are concerned about one individual, one organization, one government, uh, it's a very short-term, myopic view of things. It's fundamental for me to understand, uh, at least in India and even across the world, what are the systems that we are building that will help us build a better journalism. You know, 
Vinay, we're going to have to leave it there, but I want to encourage people to see this profound movie. Vinay Shukla is the director of While We Watched, and Ravish Kumar is the acclaimed Indian journalist and author who's featured in the film. He was the senior executive editor of NDTV India, where he hosted uh, primetime nightly news, um, the flagship weekday show. Uh, Tonight, I'll be moderating a panel with Ravish and Vinay after the film is shown at New York City's IFC Center. Next up, we speak to a first-grade teacher in Wisconsin who was fired for protesting a decision by her school district to ban her students from singing Rainbow Land, that hit song by Miley Cyrus and Dolly Parton. Rainbow Land by Miley Cyrus and Dolly Parton. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Shehwe. We end today's show with a first grade teacher who was fired after she protested a school district's decision to ban students from singing the hit song Rainbow Land by Miley Cyrus and Dolly Parton during their school spring concert. Officials said they were concerned the song was not, quote, appropriate for the age and maturity level of the students. The song supports inclusion with lyrics like, wouldn't it be nice to live in paradise where we're free to be exactly who we are? The Waukesha, Wisconsin Board of Education voted to fire Melissa Temple after she complained in a tweet that went viral that school officials decided Rainbow Land was too controversial for students to perform. Superintendent Jim Siebert told Democracy Now! Tuesday in a statement, quote, the board found Ms. Temple did not follow board policy on multiple accounts, which resulted in considerable disruption to the district. The decision of the board was not about any particular song that may or may not have been selected for a concert, but the process by which an employee goes about expressing their concerns in a productive manner in accordance with board policy, unquote. This comes as the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports a group of parents, students, teachers and members of the public are calling for the state's Justice Department to investigate claims of repeated discriminatory behavior toward LGBTQI plus students and staff by the Waukesha superintendent. For more, we're joined by Melissa Temple in Milwaukee. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. We just have about five minutes, Melissa. But I wanted to ask you if you can talk about what Rainbow Land meant to the students, why they wanted to sing it, and why they were stopped from singing it. Good morning. It's really, really nice to be here. I'm just so honored that I have a chance to talk about this with you, Amy. Um, So my students heard about the song. The music teacher introduced it to them. They had practiced it a few times with me, and in our daily morning meetings, the person of the day gets to lead the meeting, and then they get to pick a song. And so Rainbow Land was the song that they wanted to pick just one or two times before I was put on leave. Um, When I was told that we couldn't sing it anymore, um, I wanted to just make a point that when I tweeted about it, my students were obviously devastated. They loved the song. They had gotten used to it. But I didn't view what I was doing as making a complaint. You know, the 
The song had already been taken out of the program. Um, the music teacher was conducting the program. It wasn't my, part of my specific job duties. But in addition to that, it was really horrifying to know that a school district's non-discrimination, I'm sorry, not non-discrimination, our controversial content policy would go so far as to say that we couldn't sing Rainbow Land. So that's why I knew people were going to be interested to find out that that had happened. And I knew that it was going to uh, create a lot of public discussion. And I think that's exactly what it did. Well, what was the response, Melissa? Could you elaborate on that? So um, in response to my tweet from the public? Correct. So um, overwhelmingly surprise, shock. People were saying, what's wrong with the lyrics? What's wrong with the song? I mean, I've, I had a dollar for every time somebody said, well, I listened to the song and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with it or why they didn't like it. You know, it is, it's a really wholesome song. I equate it to any other song that we would sing. In fact, I would say Rainbow Land is ultimately even more of a first grade song than something like Rainbow Connection um, because the message is just such a great piece and like, you know, coming together song about acceptance. Has Miley Cyrus or um, Dolly Parton responded to the kids not being allowed to sing Rainbow Land in their concert? Um, both of those artists have uh, library or book type foundations where they donate books. And Miley Cyrus did mention my students and make a donation to her foundation. Um, but I haven't heard anything specifically from either one of them. No. I also wanted to mention as well that you asked me about the response. Um, people have asked me, well, how many parents complain and what did they say? And I heard zero complaints from parents. Nobody has said to me that they wanted me to be gone. Nobody has said to me they didn't like the song. Nobody has said to me that they thought it was inappropriate for their kids. Um, I had 24 students and zero complained to me or to anyone that I heard, heard any administrators that I know of. So, Melissa, just finally, I mean, have other teachers uh, in your school district been similarly attacked? Um, yes, I believe so. But their stories haven't gone public yet. And so but it is really dangerous. I think that these policies like the controversial content policy are expanding. And we're seeing that places like Wisconsin, where they haven't really been affecting our public education system, are now being affected. So teachers aren't wear allowed to wear rainbows in my district. We're not allowed to um, have signs that say anti-racist classroom. We're not allowed to have anything that could be deemed controversial, although the controversial content policy does not explain what controversial means other than it could something that could be seen as political. So we're seeing the same things that are happening in Florida and other places where we've all seen and been really horrified. And those things are happening in Wisconsin now as well. And I think it's really important that people realize that school boards and um, school board policies are really, really important. And we can't let groups like Moms for Liberty come in and take over and pretend that there are these grassroots, homegrown um, groups when they're really well-funded political organizations designed to take down our public schools. Finally, uh, you've been a teacher for 23 years. You won the Outstanding Teacher Award from the Wisconsin Badgers. You recently renewed your national board certification because of your commitment to the profession. Um, we have 10 seconds, but there's a call for the Wisconsin Justice Department to investigate uh, what's going on in the superintendent. I don't really know a lot about that because the parents in Waukesha and the um, Parent Alliance has been so amazing. I think that they're doing exactly what parents should be doing all over the country, and that is 
getting involved in their education of their still children. And I really commend them for that. We want to thank you so much for being with us. Melissa Temple, first grade teacher at Higher Elementary School in Waukesha, Wisconsin, fired after publicly criticizing her school district over its decision to censor the song Rainbow Land from a school concert, the choice of song by the students. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Living.